Awesome. Thanks, Pastor Marlo. Good morning, everybody. Good morning to everybody online. If you're in person, on the count of three, we're just going to say hello to everybody who's watching online. One, two, three. I didn't know what word you guys were going to use, so that was good. Hello. If you're online, we're really glad that you've joined us as well. This is going to be week two of our series on the Beatitudes that we're going through uh, this summer. Now, as a reminder, going back to last week, Pastor Marlo mentioned a great challenge this summer would be to memorize verses 3 to 10 of Matthew chapter 5 that we're going to be going through in this series. Matthew chapter 5, 3 to 10, if you want to memorize those each week, we're going to be taking each verse one by one through the summer here. So this morning is going to be the first actual verse. We're going to be looking at chapter three. If you have your Bibles, feel free. Uh, Please open up to Matthew chapter five. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with your Bible, uh, go to the New Testament. So go about two thirds into your Bible. The very first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. I'm just going to pray as we open our time together here today. God, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being able to be together, Lord, in person, online, God, to have the freedom to study your word. Thank you that you invite us to come to know you. So in these next moments, God, I just pray that you would help our ears to be open to what you would want to say to us. And God, that goes beyond the physical words that I will speak. I pray that your spirit would speak to ours and our hearts will be open and receptive to it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, as we dive in this morning, I'm gonna share something that some of you are probably aware of about me and some of you are not. Some of you are very perceptive and you probably picked it up. Uh, But I actually struggle with a physical infirmity. I have really since childhood. I don't mention it. But again, some of you obviously have seen it and would know about it. This affliction uh, doesn't really have a technical medical term, but it goes by a few different phrases. One would be resting angry face (laughs) or grumpy face. Now, it really becomes highlighted at picture time. I believe we have a picture in the back there of my my wife, Carrie, and my son, Judah. Now, you may notice both of them have great smiles. They look radiant. They look happy. And if you know them, they do pretty much all the time. Um, For those who are online, I'm just going to look at this camera so you can get a better look. I try to make myself look happy, but this is my normal face. If any of you struggle with resting angry face, you know it is not something you purposely do. It's just, it's the worst when you go through pictures and you do a, like a photo thing together as family members and then essentially picking the right picture becomes, what's the picture that dad looks the least angry in? Like, and you have people go, what were you upset about as you go through family vacation pictures? What was bothering you there? That's just my face. I can't do anything about it. So I try to purposely look and get my face to smile. But if I'm not consciously doing it, I look angry. I look frustrated. Now, I I come by this naturally. Uh, I believe that it is genetic. There's another picture up there uh, that you may see. (laughs) This is uh, is my grandfather. It's my grandpa on my mom's side. You may recognize the face a little bit. 
It actually continues to droop as you go on in life, so I'm worried about when I hit my 70s. This is actually a picture of me with my grandpa and grandma at my wedding. He was actually really happy, believe it or not. He knew that I, I went above my grade in, in marriage, but it comes, I come by it naturally. Now, the reality is, is that I can be super happy, super content, but I don't necessarily look like it. My wife, on the other time, can be having a horrible day, but she just naturally looks happy and radiant all the time. Sometimes we can judge happiness on a really superficial level. But going back to last week, if you missed it, I encourage you to go online later and listen to Pastor Marlowe's first message of this series last week. But as he laid out really clearly, in the Beatitudes, Jesus lays on us a guideline for our lives and how we are to experience true happiness. This isn't a superficial happiness that is contingent on external circumstances. But as Pastor Marlowe stated, and I'm going to quote him because this is really good, it is a deep, settled joy of the soul. This brings us to our verse today, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor. How many of you have ever read it and you just kind of stop right there? Blessed are the poor. Is Jesus saying that we are blessed if we're physically poor, if we don't have a lot of means? Some would propose this. After all, Jesus did spend a lot of time warning about the dangers of, of wealth. Now, if you broke down the crowds that followed Jesus, sometimes we like to, when we, when we hear the stories of the New Testament, we can just assume that it was a really simplistic, everybody thought the same way. But there really would have been a division in the crowd of people that followed Jesus. The traditional belief when it came to wealth was that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. If you had lots of possessions, if you had lots of land, land, lots of goats, lots of cattle, lots of children, that was a sign of God's blessing. You must be close to God's heart. But yet there was also a rebellion within the land. There were many who were looking for a Messiah because they felt like their world was broken. They looked at wealth in the exact opposite manner. Because for them, those who were extremely wealthy usually earned that wealth on the backs of others. It was wealthy landowners who took advantage of people and had them work their lands and paid them pennies. Or it was governments who took from the people and gave them nothing. Or tax collectors who skimmed off the top to keep for themselves. For them, wealth would show the exact opposite, that you are far away from God. Many who followed Jesus wanted to rebel against the unjust system that they saw, and we're looking, again, for a Messiah. That's why we've talked about us in the church before, but their idea of a Messiah was someone who would overthrow the government, take it over, and essentially bring a, a fair equality for how people were treated. Can I ask you, have you ever become so overwhelmed with the injustice of this world that you just essentially want to flip the apple cart? You want to be your own version of Robin Hood. You would love just to be able to steal from the rich and give to the poor. You want to punish those who have taken advantage of others. Let me be clear, Jesus cares deeply about each and every person. And the Bible makes it clear that close to the heart of God is the heart for justice. 
But what was a greater concern and focus was not a justice when it came to material possessions, but rather the spiritual reality of your soul. The greatest potential loss and gain of your life has nothing to do with what's in your bank account, but what's within your soul, within your heart. Jesus didn't say blessed are the poor, but blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means to be humble, to have a correct estimate of oneself. Romans 12, 3 says this, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, I give each of you this warning. Do not think better of yourselves than what you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. He says, have an honest evaluation of yourself, not a prideful evaluation. Those who are poor in spirit, it means that they are those who recognize their absolute inability to earn their own salvation. They recognize how unable they are, how worthless they are without God. To be fully, completely aware of their need for him. That we are hopelessly lost in our own sin and unable to get ourselves out. Romans 3.23, for all, now if I don't know Greek, but I'm going to pretend I do. That word all means all, <laughs> have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, the poor in spirit are those who are humble. Now, let me be clear again. I want to define this very clearly because we have sometimes misperceptions of what humility is. Humility is not simply living a life saying, I'm the worst, I'm horrible, I'm no good at anything. There is such a thing as false humility. Maybe you're like me and you know some people in your life, they can be the best artists. They essentially paint a Picasso and they'll go, oh, this is so horrible, I'm just going to throw it out. I'm no good. They're better than everybody else in the room at it, but I'm no good. What are they doing? They're looking for compliments. They're looking for affirmation. There's such a thing as false humility. And false humility is actually the greatest form of pride. That's not humility at all. This is what Moses was guilty of in Exodus chapter 4. If you remember when Moses met God at the burning bush and he called him to go to Egypt and to speak for his people. And Moses, who was actually a great leader and we see earlier in his life, spoke publicly. But he says, who am I? I can't even speak. Denying that we can accomplish God's work like Moses is, or that he has gifted us with the gifts and abilities he has is not humility. Again, it is the worst form of pride. Humility is not thinking meanly of yourself. It is simply not thinking of yourself at all. This explains why blessed, happy, truly happy are the poor in spirit. And why it is the first of the Beatitudes. For until we admit our need, we can never receive what God has for us. To be poor in spirit means yielding to God for him to make all that he wants us to be. I really like how theologian and scholar Warren Wearsby breaks down being poor in spirit. He says this, to be poor in spirit then means to know yourself, to accept yourself, and to be yourself for the glory of God. It means letting God use both your strengths and weaknesses to accomplish his will and glorify his name. So I just want to review this again really quickly. It means first, knowing yourself. 
Knowing your strengths, your weaknesses, your hidden desires, your ambitions, your spiritual gifts, and your natural abilities. It means coming to the realization of who God has made you to be. Now with that, getting to know yourself can be a painful part of maturing. All of us have dreams and aspirations. Perhaps your dreams when you were five years old and in kindergarten, like my kid was this past year, your dream of what you were gonna be was something eventually you realized you really weren't made to be. This is gonna shock you, but this, I'm gonna be gracious to myself and say five foot 10 white guy didn't make the NBA. <laughs> I wanted to, but I am not good enough at it. I also am never gonna be a carpenter because my hands are not skilled that way. There are parts about myself that I would love to be, but God hasn't made me that way. We need to know ourselves. And that can be painful sometimes, coming to that realization. Because step two is we need to accept ourselves. Some people, when they discover who they really are, don't want to accept it, and they live a life continually trying to be what they were not created to be. If you want to look through the Bible, there are story after story after story of people who had their own plan for life than what God had, and eventually God brought them there, but they fought it and it caused destruction in their lives. We have to accept ourselves, and this can be hard. We have to learn how to accept, I'm gonna get, just break this down, three different areas. We need to accept our circumstances. When circumstances in your life and my life don't go our way, how do we respond? Do I get angry or critical? Am I jealous of others? Do I try to manipulate situations or people and bend them to make them the way that I want them to be? Or do I accept what God has placed before me? Accepting doesn't mean that you like every circumstance that comes along your way, or that you wouldn't change it if you could, but that you are able to find contentment in it. You don't feel like you have to have a certain title, wealth, prestige, or powerful position to have worth. Your worth is defined by your relationship with God. As Paul said in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. We need to accept our circumstances and we need to accept others. Those who are poor in spirit are not disturbed by the attitudes or criticism of other people because they don't live to please them, they live to please God. My self-worth is not based on being seen as better in your eyes. Others are no longer my competition because of that. I recognize that I'm not in, com in competition with the people to my right and to my left. I don't need to put down, to minimize, or to prove wrong others in order to make myself feel right. We live in a world that kind of operates that way. We like to say that we're great for having understanding and acceptance, but truly we all try to bend each other's arms. That's what our culture does. Is acceptance, but acceptance means viewing things my way and agreeing with me. Accepting of self makes it easier to also accept others. It doesn't mean we agree with them. But when others succeed, you are genuinely happy for them. And when they fail, you look to encourage them, not to belittle them and tell them they were wrong. We see in the Old Testament, 
two biblical characters. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there's two characters called David and Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul was put in, into a place of great power and prestige. But we see that Paul, Saul's downfall, Paul was in no way poor in spirit. He was followed by another king, David. David was a man after God's own heart. He was poor in spirit. When, Saul, when David ended up defeating an army for Saul, he was happy for it until the people started to say, Saul has slayed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. David began to, beget, to get prestige and power that Saul desired for himself and became jealous. You see, the poor in spirit do not feel it as their personal responsibility to judge and condemn the world around them or to be in competition with them. They do not repeat the dysfunctional cycles of shame that are represented around them. They have experienced firsthand it is not the punishment, the condemnation of God that brings people to repentance, but as the Bible says, it is the goodness of God that brings repentance, which means brings change in others. They realize it's not their job to hammer on others, but it is God's job, responsibility, and only him who can bring the change that's needed in our lives and needed in theirs. When you accept yourself, when you receive God's forgiveness and grace, you find it easier to accept others and also easier to accept God's plan for your life, which is the third thing to accept, is God's will for your life. The poor in spirit recognize that they are in a place of God's choosing, working to fulfill the purpose of God's choosing, and depending on the power that only God can provide to do it. They don't need to achieve and prove on their own. They aren't fighting to make sure their face is seen and their voice is heard. They just care about being faithful to what God puts before them. Your life is not measured by your personal accomplishments, but by the great call God has on your life and your ability to be faithful to it. The poor in spirit live with a kingdom mindset and invest into things that have eternal worth. So again, the poor in spirit know themselves, they accept themselves, and going to that Wearsby explanation again, the final thing is they are themselves, being yourself. Being yourself means using your strengths that God has given you to overcome your weaknesses and using your weaknesses to discover the power of God in your life. As it says in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians, when I am weak, then he is strong. That in our weakness, when we submit to God, that he can perform miracles and power in our life. Being yourself involves yielding to the spirit of God and permitting him to fulfill his will in your life. You are not trying to imitate someone else or envying someone else or thinking if I just did it this way, or the guy on TV said, if I did this, this would bring success and this would bring what I want. You are yourself. And in God, your very best self, empowered by the spirit of God to do what he's called you to do. To be poor in spirit is to know ourselves, accept ourselves, and be ourselves. So happy, deep joy in the soul are those who are poor in spirit, the last part of this verse, here's the promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promise and reward for those who are poor in spirit, they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now the king of heaven 
we see clearly in the Bible is God. The triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The kingdom of heaven, we experience two parts. The promise of the kingdom of heaven we experience right now in this life is the first part. This is the eternal quality of life we get to live with God before we die. We read about this in John 10.10. I have come that they may have life and life to not halfway partial, but life to the full. That we get to experience a fullness in life for those of us who are poor in spirit. Now the reality though of the promise of the kingdom of heaven is not fully experienced yet. It's what theologians will refer to as the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. We experience it now, but we do not yet fully experience it until after this life. Ultimately, it is fully in eternity in heaven with God after death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, in the book of Romans in chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, it says this. For all, again, you're all Greek scholars with me. That word all means all, okay? For all have sinned and fall Short. There is a standard that God set, and that standard is perfection. The Bible makes it clear, in fact, the entire story through the Old Testament into the New Testament to the cross of Christ is that humanity, all of us, fell short. There is not one who reaches the level that is needed to be with God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, are made right, are legally made right with God by his grace, his forgiveness that is given as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is why we celebrate at at Easter as Christians. It's because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the grace of God that gives us salvation the opportunity to be united and made perfect with God, with him in eternity in heaven, a freedom from our own sin, from our own habits, from our own bondage. That freedom is not able to be earned. And when we pridefully try to earn it ourselves by our own good works, the Bible tells us that's the exact opposite of the poor in spirit. It's pride. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize that they are unworthy, that they are unable to receive God. And with that, there is a greater openness, desire, and recognition of the need to receive God's assistance. Some of you are great handymen. Some of you are quasi-handymen. And some of you are me. Figure out what that means. Some of you in that middle part, maybe your spouse doesn't really appreciate when you try to fix things in the house. 
One of the things that I learned through the first couple years of marriage and I've learned in my life is I need to have humility when it comes to projects in my house. There is a very limited amount of things that I can fix. If it involves plumbing, I'm not touching it. If it involves electrical, I'm not touching it. If it involves something that people are going to have to see every day, still probably not touching it. If it's a small project that's in the corner or in the laundry room or something, I'll work on it. But there is a humility in me in that I recognize I'm not very good. Some of us, some of you are in that quasi zone where you're kind of good enough, but you also end up costing yourself more money down the line because you spend a lot of money trying to fix it yourself. I see a couple heads in shame. A lot of money trying to fix it yourself and then have to pay a handyman to fix your jobs, then fix the original problem. Blessed are those who pour in spirit, who recognize within themselves the emptiness that they have that they don't try to fix it on their own. They recognize they are in need of a savior to free them from the bondage that's in their life, who freely offers and says, I will come and I'll repair that. Blessed are them, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As Luke 18 says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The kingdom of God works in a reverse hierarchy from how we operate. It is a reversed pyramid God raises up the humble and humbles those who raise themselves up. You do not need to have it all together to come to Christ. So excited today, in a few minutes, we're going to be having two people get baptized. And oftentimes, when we talk about baptism, there's a lot of people I talk to, I'm not ready yet because I need to get my life in order first. You do not need to get your life in order to come to Christ. That's the whole point. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their need and recognize they can't fix it themselves, and come to God and receive the free gift of grace he has already offered to them. When we submit to Christ, the King of heaven... He shares his authority and his inheritance with us. When we are low enough, we get to be trusted with a throne. I like how one author puts it. We reign as followers of Jesus. We reign as kings because we submit as servants. Happy, truly joyful in their soul are those who live with honest humility in life because they will be exalted and co-heirs with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. To close this morning, I want to encourage you who are Christ followers. Some of you have become discontent, and I get that because I, I get there myself. And you look, there are circumstances in your life, and you feel stuck, and you go, God, I have big dreams and big aspirations. Where are the opportunities for me to step out I'm, the world is so oblivious to me. I am such a small, small fleck. No one even sees me. There are not opportunities big enough worthy of my abilities. Opportunities will come. Be faithful with your current circumstances and God will trust you with more. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. I'm just going to share this and then Pastor Marlowe's going to come and pray. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares. Church, he cares. 
one who is listening today and you have never actually had a relationship with Jesus and this is so foreign with you, you need to know there is a God that is not there who is looking to hammer on you. There is a God who so loved that he gave and he cares for you. on what it means to be poor in spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to let this truth of your word and these truths that we have been taught this morning and reminded of this morning, that you would let those settle in our hearts and show themselves in new patterns in in our lives as we live for you. Help us in this, Lord God to digest and apply your word in our everyday life. And I pray right now for those that are in decision-making mode to, to, to think about what it means to be loved by the God who created them and to step into an eternal and a personal and eternal relationship with you as they're, as they're the forgiver of their sin and the leader of their life. May there be people that are doing that right now. Draw them to you, to your heart of love for them. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.